Hello, I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine, and you're listening to The New Yorker Poetry Podcast. We have a special program for you today. We're more than a year into the COVID-19 pandemic that has altered life immeasurably for each of us as individuals and for our shared society. Even so, students of history will realize that ours is actually a precedented time as we endure the twin pandemics of COVID and racism. For some of us, the present patterns are all too familiar. We're approaching the centennial of the Tulsa massacre with its destruction of lives and Black Wall Street. And just over a century ago, the red summer of 1919 was marked by widespread attacks on black people at the same time that the influenza pandemic was ravaging the country. As we've struggled today to reimagine the ways we inhabit the world separately and together, we've also witnessed a recurrence of very public racism and violence. Specifically, we've seen a surge in racist attacks, harassment, and discrimination against Asian American and Pacific Islander communities from New York to Atlanta and beyond that has left many shaken. Many have also spoken out and organized using the hashtag StopAsianHate. What's poetry's part in marking this moment? In a moment that calls for us to mourn those we have lost to hate and to honor the rich traditions that have long endured against impression, what better tool than poetry to help us grieve, resist, celebrate? We asked such a question last year with three prominent African-American poets at the height of the crisis. And today I'm excited to talk with and listen to four renowned writers about Asian-American poetics and the role of poetry in our tumultuous times. Kamiko Han, a distinguished professor at Queens College City University of New York, has received a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Shelley Memorial Award from the Poetry Society of America. She's published 10 books of poems, including most recently, Foreign Bodies. Monica Yoon, a former lawyer and a member of the Racial Imaginary Institute, teaches at Princeton, the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and the William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America, she will publish a new book of poems, From From, in 2023. Paul Tran, a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University, has received a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation and a 92Y Discovery Boston Review Poetry Prize. Their debut poetry collection, All the Flowers Kneeling, will be published in 2022. Megan Fernandez is an assistant professor of English and writer-in-residence at Lafayette College, a finalist for the Kundiman Book Prize and the Saturnalia Book Prize. Her most recent poetry collection is Good Boys. Kamiko, Monica, Paul, Megan, welcome. Thank you all so much for being here. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you Thanks, so much, Kevin. Kevin. Good to see you all. So great to be here with you all. Yes. So we'll start off this conversation by hearing some of your work that's been published in The New Yorker. Uh, Kamika, why don't we begin with you? The New Yorker published your poem, To Be a Daughter and to Have a Daughter, last March, just as the pandemic began to take hold in New York and the U.S. Is there anything you'd like listeners to know about this poem before we hear it? I will say it's a sestina, and uh, I'll just read it. To be a daughter and to have a daughter can forecast at odd relationships, especially when the mother hazards to write while keeping the baby safe from herself as she and the baby wail, one in the crib, the other on the floor to wail with the vacuum cleaner so the daughter can't hear mama drowning 
So the new relationship isn't all arithmetic and geometry, all right angles barely connecting. What is left at dusk, still tender and safe, you couldn't pluck and lock in a safe, not unlike a girl calf and her mama whale. Two generations of breaching daughters, applauded by tourists on a ship, but more lightly, if they are right whales, or what species are left of those docile equatorial pods, never left by men hunting their fat. They are not safe. Larger than greys, smaller than blue whales, mother and son or daughter in their year-long relationship are so buoyant that whalers called them the right whale to hunt. Funny, given the mariner's right to trick a man to think he'd been left for the sharks without the safety of pity or prayer. Then that whaler would wail for his own mother, wife, or daughter. When it comes to daughter-mother relationships, I've written on both till there's nothing left without breaching safety, without wailing. After all, I love daughters and I love ships. That was To Be a Daughter and To Have a Daughter by Kamiko Han, which appeared in the March 23rd, 2020 issue of The New Yorker. Thank you. That poem was amazing. It was great to hear it. And it brings up for me so many things. Um, I love the ending where you say, uh, without breaching safety, and, and some of what we're talking about is that today. But I'm also thinking about tradition and the idea of what is passed down and carried forth across generations. And I wonder how we approach poetry and tradition in this moment of transition. And this poem came out before COVID or right at the start. How has COVID changed our relationship to that? Well, thinking out loud, I'll say that going to a form to write has been something that I've been interested in doing for a while, that I have been doing for several years as a kind of assignment for myself. It is not unlike being inside <laughs> a quarantine in a sense. You know, there's a kind of restraint and compression. So looking at tradition feels very um, uh, appropriate. Uh, it's stepping outside time. Now, the quarantine is not stepping outside time. Uh, it's not our choice. Uh, so I don't want to romanticize, but I think there is some kind of correlation there. <laughs> and I think tradition for me is, uh, is a part of history that's been formalized and elevated in prestige above other parts of history, right? And you can think of it as having the same prestige as certain received forms, such as sonnet. Uh, you can also think of it as having the same prestige as certain received histories, like mythology. And what all of them have to do with the idea of identity and nation is kind of, I think, what a lot of us have been circling around uh, recently. I just wanted to say how much I loved the use of the word forecast in this poem at the opening. And I think that one of the ways in which this poem sort of plays with tradition is to think about forecast as opposed to foreshadow, looking towards a future as opposed to looking towards a past. And I even, I love the way the poem ends on this note of I love ships and daughters. It kind of destabilizes 
for me, these kinds of mythologies we have about intergenerational relationships between mothers and daughters, specifically like in Asian American communities, which is often a preoccupation of those literatures. Um, but I just, I loved that opening. And then where we end, I just wanted to say that. I don't know if we can fangirl on here. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love a deep fangirl moment, especially with this question and this poem with the Sistina, I think about the repeated N-words that recur like what is passed down. And when I think about how Sistinas are usually arranged in those separate stanzas, this poem is not separated. It's all asking to be considered at once. And with the N-words collapsing inwards in their repetition, it's the speaker's interiority moving inward through what is passed down. And it's just so gorgeous to me. Well, I love how, how you're saying also, there's end word and inward. Those yes. those two things are related. You know, um, I think of it as such a an interesting eye as well that we're hearing here. It, it kind of doesn't poke its head out till the end, but I, I feel like there's a self being spoken of that's really layered and complex. And uh, by men hunting their fat, they are not safe. We're in this moment of both safety and not safety, of interiority, of being inside, as, as you pointed out, and also feeling external forces weighing on us uh, in a daily way. So there's something about that uh, journey that the poem is describing, two generations of breaching daughters uh, and these whales, and the play between a whale, uh, W-H-A-L-E, and a W-A-I-L is a top of mind for me, too. <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, I wanted to actually go back to a word that Monica brought up, uh, received, uh, as in received forms. I mean, we can also use that word received for stereotypes and, and traditions. Uh, some traditions are positive, some not so much. But I think that's a really important word for what we're talking about today, right? What do we receive, but also what I will not receive I will not receive something. You know, I have been a victim. Being a victim uh, and violence is part of my identity, but I also reject that. And so that word receive is, is very tricky and very interesting. So thank you for that word, Monica. Well, thank you. And I love, I love the obsessive form of the Sistina. I would love to read this poem aloud while circling around my room the way I have been doing so much over, over this past year to get my 10,000 steps in. Um, and uh, you can think of it as constraint on one level, but you can also think of it as practice, this, um, this meditation in a way that's generative. And I also want to point out this moment when the poem turns to create the figure of the girl and the mama, like the two generations that breach whales, it goes not unlike. And I think so much of figuration is about comparing likeness and similarity. And just that rhetorical move of saying something is not unlike opens it up in a whole new way. I loved that moment of the poem also because of the word buoyant that comes afterwards. So this idea that just because something is docile doesn't mean, you know, that it means actually it's buoyant, it can survive. Thank you all. I think you've really opened the poem up in many ways and open up this question, I think, about tradition. Uh, I wanted to ask about how we relate to Asian American literary tradition specifically and how that category, which has its own specific history, also encompasses many distinct traditions, cultures, histories, experiences. How do you all think about 
Asian American poetics uh, and what do you envision there? I mean, I think of an Asian American poetics as somewhat different from an Asian poetics to the extent that you can even talk about a poetics across such a category. Asian, Asian American, those, you know, incredibly broad terms. But, you know, I, I think of my own current practice as inhabiting an Asian American poetics that is deracinated, that is looking to Asian American models, uh, but that does not in some ways have access to Asian models uh, because of barriers of language, because of barriers of culture and heritage. Um, and, you know, acknowledging that breach and not trying to uh, plaster over it with some easy word like authenticity um, is important to me. Kevin, I think this is such an important question because often I see the question being posed as a way of asking about style or aesthetics. But when I think about an Asian American poetics or an Asian American prosody or an Asian American whatever, I'm really thinking about a way of thinking. And it brings me to the idea that the poem is a mind at work. How that mind can import its singular subjectivity onto the page in a way that allows the speaker to investigate their interiority and to understand the investigation of a deep interiority as radically political, not just simply observing and looking outward in the world, but that deep inward looking and to establish, therefore, that the speaker on the page is a real person and is the work of not proving ourselves human a deeply radical work. I love that. I love that, Paul. And and I've thought of this question actually <laughs> over the decades. And as has been said already, it is not across the board, of course, because we are different generations, different uh, generations, immigrant. I'm mixed, so part Japanese-American. Okay, so there's all that. But <laughs> I would say that there is very often a psychological vulnerability with with language whether it's english and english is my first language or whether it's japanese which i don't speak fluently at all so i feel very very vulnerable when it comes to speaking and writing as if i'm not ever going to get it right. And I think that's partly me <laughs> and, you know, a girl growing up in the 50s and 60s and so on. But I also think it really is received, to use Monica's word again, that I, I'm not going to be able to express myself as well as someone else, someone more mainstream, white, if you will. I always um, think that Asian American writers have taught me that it's okay to be a little bit illegible. You know, I think a lot of Asian Americans are always racialized as forever foreigner, even if your families have been here for a really long time. And that that's something that, you know, within that illegibility or that, as Ocean Vong puts it, that unfathomability, one has to find other kinds of methods to feel like you have some sort of connection to your homeland, even if your homelands feel really theoretical, right? Depending on when your family came here. Um, and I always think about Mina Alexander, who wrote in the beginning of one of her poems, she said, in the absence of reliable ghosts, I made an aria. And I love that. In the absence of something that is figurative or spectral, you know, I made a song. And I think about that in terms of um, 
you know, what I can reach to. I can always reach to sort of this sonic place, this kind of hallucinatory place, this sort of surreal place, this multidimensional place where there might be an absence of a real time and space in which I feel like I have to have some sort of archive or history or connection to. And, you know, just to come up with a point, uh, my mother's side is third generation East African. They're part of this large Indian diaspora that, that you know, was in Tanzania and they grew up speaking Swahili. And so often when I'm in spaces where I'm trying to sort of make myself intelligible as Asian American, I also have to find a little bit of comfort in the idea that most of us, I don't think grew up learning uh, and had like an Indian ocean diaspora history class. And so, you know, where I learned a lot of my politics of resilience was actually from a lot of black writers, right? And um, I think that that's also an important thing to say is that the way that black and Asian and South Asian solidarity sort of come together has been an important way of making myself intelligible reading June Jordan, just as well as reading Nina Alexander. I mean, well said, I think you're both talking about connectedness uh, and intersectionality. Uh, but also, I think, exile in some way, uh, which is certainly something that's one of the subjects of African-American poetry. It's the subject of the blues. It's the subject of the spirituals. But I think you're also having us think about the ways in which language, losing a language or learning a language or never having a language or also uh, poetry being a kind of homeland, uh, something that I think Seamus Heaney helped me understand and helped me sort of contend with. And he, of course, was always contending with Irish and Gaelic and, and those kinds of questions. Um, so it's very much top of mind for me. And it's powerful to hear you all talk about it. Now, Monica, we published your sequence, Study of Two Figures, Dr. Seuss' Chrysanthemum Pearl, in March 2021, on the heels of reckoning with racist imagery in Dr. Seuss's books. This was a bit of a coincidence. We've been planning to run it for a while, but uh, it happened right in the midst of that. Can you tell us a little bit about the sequence before you read from it? Sure. This is just some a fact that I came across that I was absolutely fascinated with, which was that, uh, you know, in the late 1930s, many of us know that Dr. Seuss, who was then working as an editorial cartoonist, came out with just dozens upon dozens of unbelievably racist images of Asian Americans in defense of, uh, first of all, U.S. entry into the war against Japan and then in favor of Japanese internment. At the same time he's doing this and also working on propaganda films um, for the US Army War Department, um, he and his wife are unable to have children. And so they have this imaginary daughter and they name her Chrysanthemum Pearl, right? Um, and, you know, Japanoiserie, you know, at the time he's working at the War Department with Ruth Benedict, who writes The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. This is the symbol of Imperial Japan. And so I'm thinking, okay, so what does it mean to be combining this racist hatred with this sentimentalized longing? Um, and what does that have to tell us about white images of Asian Americans then and now? Let's have a listen. This is Monica Yoon reading excerpts from Study of Two Figures, Dr. Zeus, Chrysanthemum, Pearl. Okay, and this is four of the subsections of a 12-part series, starting with Pacific Coast. The marine layer, like a swell of flesh, so cultivated, so lush, it takes on a nacreous gleam. The self-soothing shield anxiety secretes in self-defense, 
to encase the incipient irritant in a cocoon of quick dry sameness. Even the sun's gold-toned strivings raise only the palest, painless blister. After all, what is a pearl but a cyst sent to finishing school? Flora. Eucalyptus leaf litter, gold love locks scatter. The doctor gathers a fistful, the doctor fastens. He fashions a gilt-tiered coiffure a la Shirley Temple, a filigree temple whose crosshatched discretions screen her secret face. Well concealed in Greek, a la Trojan horse, translates as eucalyptus, a leafy whispering gallery for Santa Anna's breezy insinuations. These invasive exotic imports outcompete the native species. Their incendiary seed capsules open only after fire. Dream. In the doctor's dream, he sprints from field to field. He fits a lens cap on the compound swiveling eye of every sunflower. In the drought-dry orchards, each almond's peach-fuzz hull splits in a sinister slit. He shakes the spawning trees. He speeds a combine harvester up and down the teeming nut-brown rows he feeds. But there are only so many he can possibly consume. Studio. In the tower room, she forces open every window. The Santa Ana carries a whiff of smoke, a scatter of desert scree. A folded newspaper flaps open like an over-eager eagle, a cartoon regiment of slant-eyed buck-toothed father figures. A chain of paper dolls ad infinitum unreels across the coastline like a concertina cue. With ink-stained hands, she rubs her own eyes, sees a daughter's face reflected. She dips a rag in turpentine, she wipes away the inky lines, the milky shine unbinds her coronet coiffure. She dissolves the buffering luster down to her incessant itch. A speck of sallow grit flies toward the gold-rimmed glaring eye of the Pacific. That was a selection of poems from Study of Two Figures, Dr. Zeus, Chrysanthemum Pearl by Monica Yoon, an interactive poetry feature published on newyorker.com. There's so much to talk about here. I'd love to hear y'all's uh, impressions, but I also wondered to talk a little bit about what we've already mentioned, which is about stereotypes and their resistance. Uh, I know in my writing, I'm always writing against stereotypes, but sometimes you have to invoke them even as you dismiss them. And Monica, is that something you were interested in here? Is the stereotype another if troubling form to play with? Oh, very much so. I mean, I think that there's a kind of model minority understory going to this series. Um, uh, Dr. Seuss, uh, you know, Ted Geisel and his wife, Helen, would weirdly brag about Chrysanthemum Pearl as if she was a real girl in their letters, in their Christmas cards, to the point that their niece thought they had a daughter. Um, and they would brag about her accomplishments at school, the various things she could do. And it very much reminded me of the way in which Asian Americans are both put on this sort of pedestal, but also treated as, you know, not fully human, to be feared, etc. Yeah, it reminds me of a doll, right? We're making this little doll and we're playing with this little doll. Um, I mean, the name reminds me of Gilbert and Sullivan, the Mikado, right? We just need these cutesy little names. Um, and that's farcical, of course. 
I just wanted to comment for a moment, sort of gush over the language, Monica, <laughs> because especially since I just said, you know, uh, having a kind of odd relationship to language, language is, and yet that's what we do. And your language is just so lush. I just love the scientific element, the playful element, and the language is just so textured and gorgeous. So uh, no hesitation there <laughs> with that outpouring of just gorgeous poetry. Well, and, you know, Dr. Seuss himself was quite a rhythmic stylist in terms of his own verse. Chrysanthemum Pearl, of course, follows the same anapestic pattern as, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, right? And I looked and I saw him, the cat in the hat. And I wanted to have the poem partake of that sonic playfulness, of that resonance, a certain childish quality. I initially wrote it all in anapestic tetrameter, but then I thought, okay, this is actually too nursery rhyme to deal with the subject matter, which, you know, it's just too much of a mismatch. I can't deal with it. I want to say I'm so blown away by all the botanical imagery of this poem and the way that it acts as this kind of metaphor also for the child of the harvester only feeds what it can consume. You know, if we pull back and think about what that means in terms of the nation state and the relationship to the Asian American model minority, I think that that is such a great point that sort of underlies the whole set of poems. And I also think it's important that the focus here is on a child. So like we talk about like the Asian American model minority. We are in a way talking about children. We're talking about the youth, the threat of the youth, the economic anxiety of what this new model minority might kind of displace um, from whiteness, right? And from white excellence. I want to build on what Megan just said about the child, because the infantilization of the racialized other is a hallmark of American racism. One of the first poems I learned was Rudyard Kipling's The White Man's Burden, in which he talks about how the Philippines were a country of half-devil, half-child people. And the poem called on the United States to go forward with American imperialism in Southeast Asia. Uh, anxiety that has been part of the founding of this country. And so in these poems where Monica takes that back and shows how the making of the other as children continues to pervade how American racism works is just stunning and so astute. Yeah, and just to circle back for a second to Megan's comment and uh, to Kamika's about the botanics of it, about the agriculture of it, because of course, the first the Chinese and then the Japanese and Koreans were brought to this country in order to make, you know, California this agricultural breadbasket. Um, they were brought here, a lot of the techniques that made California initially so prosperous were Japanese agricultural techniques. But then as soon as they became too good at it, the waves of um, exclusion acts started first, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then the Oriental Exclusion Act, which is to say, you know, they want us to come here to put our heads down to work hard, but they don't want us to be full Americans, you know. They want us to build up the country, but they don't want us to, to get to eat the fruits that we, uh, that we sow, right? I hate to get all Marxist on everyone, <laughs> but it's surplus labor, right? So we bring in the labor when we need it. Same thing with slavery. Same thing with all these groups of people. Once they're no longer needed, 
just uh, uh, throw them out, essentially. Yeah, I think of the, you know, the sort of white replacement theory, you know, Tucker Carlson and the Charlottesville Mm -hmm. marchers. I mean, in a way, we were brought here to replace people. I mean, they brought in Asian laborers in order to keep white working class laborers from unionizing. And then once emancipation happened, they brought us to the American South to undercut the wages of freed enslaved people. Um, We have been put in a position where we are the temporary replacements of American labor, and then we can be disposed of, um, shipped back to, you know, go home to back where you came from uh, after that. What's interesting to me, too, is the resilience, which I think someone mentioned earlier, and maybe it appears in your poem to me about when you mentioned grit, which, of course, creates the pearl. So there is this kind of... uh, I don't know if it's an undertow or a undersong or a resistance that speaks to that long, complicated history, but one that also, I always think in terms of, you know, African-American culture, how resilient it is and how pervasive it is. And I, I feel the same thing is, is being at least championed or mentioned in the poem, Dr. Zeus's weird desire or his creating this fiction um, that for some reason um, goes hand in hand. And I think your poem suggests that they're not so different. They're hand in hand for a reason. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I always think that hatred is the flip side of desire or resentment is the flip side of desire. And we see that playing out in our culture uh, with respect to the racialized other constantly. Paul, next we'll hear your poem, Copernicus, which the New Yorker published pre-pandemic in January, 2020. Is there anything listeners should know about the poem before you read it? Yes, um, the poem refers to Nicholas Copernicus, who authored on the revolutions of celestial spheres in 1543, the same year that Andreas Vesalius authored De Humani Corporis Fabrica that gave people insight into the human body. And in Copernicus's work, he shifted our commonplace understanding of the heavens from being a geocentric model with the earth at the center, which was what was taught to him, to a heliocentric model with the sun at the center. And I learned this little fact in a AP European history class back in high school taught by an incredible teacher, Oscar Ramos. But it stayed with me because that moment in history led to what we understand as the enlightenment or the scientific revolution. And it concretized what Westerners understood about themselves, which was this Occidental exceptionalism that then pushed them to imperialism and colonization. I traced my family's migration story to the U.S. back to a moment like this, but also feeling conflicted because there is an admiration, I feel, to someone who stands in the face of history and rebukes it and says, maybe what I've been told isn't true. And so the poem is in part epistolary, speaking back to Copernicus, and an insertion of my own persona. Well, let's hear it. Here's Paul Tran reading their poem, Copernicus. Copernicus, who doesn't know how doubt lifts the hem of its nightgown to reveal another inch of thigh before the face of faith. I once didn't. I once thought I was my own geometry, my own geocentric planet spinning 
like a ballerina, alone at the center of the universe, at the command of a god, opening my music box with his dirty mouth. He said, let there be light. And I thought I was the light. I was a man's failed imagination. Now I know what appears as the motion of heaven is just the motion of earth, not stars, not whatever I want. That was Copernicus by Paul Tran, which ran in the January 20th, 2020 issue of The New Yorker. I'm David Remnick, host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. That was amazing to hear. And I thought I was the light. I was a man's failed imagination. I love that. Uh, and your explanation gives us this other shading. But I think that the poem is so much about uh, thinking one's the center of the universe, yes. which has good and bad uh, implications, and then being reminded quite the opposite. Uh, I wonder how we, we take the poem. First of all, I just wanted to comment a little bit on what Kevin just said about like the nature of a kind of individual spotlight and this like amazing celestial um, imagery that you have in the poem, but that what you really wanted was the stars. Um, I love that, that desire for not one spotlight, but for a constellation or a more relational uh, illumination. Thank you so much, Meg, for saying that. It's this poem is really special to me because it came after a really difficult conversation with my thesis advisor, where he asked me, could I see myself writing poems that were not about my family trauma and personal trauma? And could I see myself, for example, standing in line at a cafe, waiting to get a bagel and writing a lyric experiment about that? And I looked at him and said, I don't think I could because I didn't realize at the time, I thought my suffering made me special. And I thought there had to be a reason for everything. And maybe in the pursuit of that reason, I can emerge having been chosen for this suffering. But in the process of creating this poem, I realized that was incredible arrogance. And instead, there was something I had to learn about the experience, that a poem isn't simply representation, it is investigation. And even though this poem utilizes a rather hackneyed rhetorical device, the now I know device, it was really important for me to utter that because I had previously just thought one knew everything. As a, a child of refugees, I had to know English, had to translate, had to learn how to do my mom's taxes and you know all the governmental paperwork. I just had to know things before my time. But really, I don't know. I don't know anything. Well, I feel the poem knows a lot. You know, it's a poem of wisdom, even if part of the wisdom is exactly what you're saying of relinquishing wisdom. Um, there's something really beautiful about it. And I think you put it so well. I also saw it as almost like Copernicus, like being embodied and disembodied at the same time. There's something about possession in the poem for me um, that's really beautiful. And to me, what you've done is dare to speak in this 
multitudinal voices. It's Copernicus, it's not, it's against Copernicus. There's something about that uh, inhabiting and also distancing that I think is really a powerful move. Thank you for picking it, Kevin. This is uh, such a, a, a beautiful poem. I love it for um, both the simplicity of language, but then the diction will become a little more complicated, a little more sophisticated, if you will, geometry, universe. I mean, those are not big words, right? But we suddenly go from I once didn't to geocentric planet. And I love those shifts in and out of uh, very particular diction and the, the sort of mixing up of different kinds of diction. Um, I also really appreciate that it ends with not whatever I want. So the poem that's so much about desire ends with the word want, which is desire, but also has very different meanings than just desire. It's also, uh, there's like such a sexy part of this poem. Can I just say that? It's really, <laughs> it's fun. Kameka, you can talk about sex whenever and however you want. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I love the um, the striptease of this, or, you know, I, I don't want to sexualize the whole thing. What I was about to say was, I love how this poem for me is like a sphere that you start opening and then you suddenly find you turn it inside out and there's another sphere on the inside. And, you know, what Kamiko was saying about the poem ending with these knots, I mean, these, these negations are all the way through the poem. That's the opening gesture of the poem, the closing gesture of the poem, and each time you invert what you thought you were talking about and the way in which sexuality and faith are brought in almost as cognates, right? To that doubt lifts the hem of its nightgown to reveal another inch of thigh before the face of faith. Doubt being what faith wants, what faith is tempted by. I thought that was amazing, especially considering the negative geometries of the poem. Um, and I also want, you know, in terms of negation, I also wanted to respond to what Paul was saying earlier about like what you can write about, what you can't write about, because I feel like I went through a, I mean, I'm always still in this period of self-doubt, right? I mean, it has to do with being a racialized other who is trying to be an artist. Uh, you're always wondering, who am I doing this for? Who am I representing for? I remember being haunted when I was coming of age as a poet by a phrase that uh, Homi Baba used to describe uh, Salman Rushdie's uh, Midnight's Children, which was, uh, he's packaging Asianness for Western consumption. And I thought, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. That's the last thing I ever want to do. I better steer clear of that. But what that led me to do for a long time is to be overly risk averse in talking about identity at all. I appreciate all those comments so much. And I want to clarify by saying the comment came to me from Carl Phillips, who in that moment, I think, was trying to get me to assess what about my life did I value? Could I value a moment such as that standing in line in the cafe? Could I value other parts of my identity beyond what our society, our poetry marketplace tells poets like myself should value? And there was this deep shame in me that I didn't yet 
put my value in those other places, that I only saw myself in the silos and pigeonholes I was placed in. I didn't fully understand how deeply I had internalized um, a narrow image of myself. And so his comment was deeply liberating. And I don't know, I go back to the idea that the poem should liberate me. At the end, something has to happen in the poem that transforms me. And the pain of that transformation is always going to be great, but it's not the same pain as whatever it is I might be writing about. That was so beautifully uh, put, Paul, and I felt so much of what you said there. I also want to talk about this line, I was a man's failed imagination, which to me, like, my heart just like, broke reading that line because I think, you know, that is part of also being a racialized other, right? Um, and also being a, relation, a racialized uh, other in the context of uh, a man, right? A cis, cis, hetero, white man, which is that you're always a little bit like the failure is what is the fetish. The failure that you're not living up to this thing is sort of part of the fetish. And that this beautiful misrecognition happens where it's like what I thought was the, the sky was actually the earth is also about what's happening on the other side of what we can know we don't always know what we cannot recognize because if we could, we could recognize it. Um, and I just, I wanted to say, I love that line in particular. And that racism begins in the imagination. Violence begins in the imagination. Kevin, you talked earlier about possession and it felt really important to me to possess Copernicus for a second, because in a similar way, I'm writing in English, a language that was supposed to possess me, a language that my mom learned in the refugee processing centers. And in her workbooks, there would be questions like, when your you know, sink breaks, do you A, call the plumber, B, uh, fix it yourself, C, whatever. And the correct answer was A, call the plumber. And it was not so that she would learn a vocabulary word like plumber. It was to introduce her into American capitalism, that she would spend her money on someone else's services in order to advance capitalism. And I try to reclaim those things, that someone like me can write about a person like Copernicus and to, and, and to claim what has tried to claim me. Which brings us back to, you know, what is the construction of self under these circumstances? I mean, I, you know, not to talk about my own poem in this project, but I'm going to anyways. But, you know, I mean, when Kimiko said that Chrysanthemum Pearl is a doll and at the center of this doll is a piece of grit once she gets past everyone else's imaginings of what she is, once she gets rid of all of that. But the grit is something. What is the grit, right? What can we make of this grit uh, and what does this grit have to do with representation, which is what we do as artists? Oh, so well said. I mean, I've, just a few things that come to mind are, are the quality of intimacy and not just Paul's poem, but all of the poems and also vulnerability. And then at the same time, sort of questions of performance and questions of proclaiming and, and, and form, all those kind of questions that I think are, uh, you know, in the best of poems, but here I think come to the fore and really uh, are ones you're wrestling with. Uh, so that brings us last, but certainly not least, uh, to Megan's poem. The New Yorker published your poem, Shanghai, in the summer of 2020. Do you have any preliminary comments about the poem? Anything you want listeners to be aware of? Um, I wrote this poem uh, when I was living in Shanghai. I was there for three or four months uh, in an artist residency. And I was living with people from all over the world, from um, Kenya and Australia and uh, Guatemala. And so that's something that 
certainly shapes part of the poem. I also wrote this poem thinking about women traveling, um, women as travel writers, Asian American women as travel writers, brown bodied women as travel writers, which is not something I have as much of a, an archive for. Um, and so uh, that's important is also thinking about not just being Asian America as the Asian against the Asian sort of um, relationship to America, but also, you know, being an Indian person in China, right? I want to think about these kinds of parallel identities and tensions and uh, ways of being with each other. So this poem is called Shanghai. I fell in love many times these months with certain evenings, the city awash in green Neptune light. When I was low, I was low and the city welcomed it, wrestled a steady heat from my melancholy. To be shanghaied once meant to be kidnapped against your will during a shortage of sailors. Some were forced to sign with guns to their temples. Others beat unconscious, woke to the wide roaring sea, ready to serve. It was violent. Today, the bright plazas speed us into manic dream, the kind where you know your executioner is coming, when we all get high on the fluorescence and doom. This is a place where I've let people down, but the penance is different, not like New York with her sad gargoyles. Instead, Shanghai has her young surveilling moonlight. Outside, a wild and holy river runs full of tanks and neon boats, peppered below a bulbous skyline. I fed a cat here and named her. Creaturely orange, she disappeared on Hanko Road. It broke up my whole day. I had that small burst of fantasy of our life together, me and her, a new origin story that keeps repeating. It says here, 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 an eternal present that keeps loss at bay. That is the trick of this city. It looks like a weird hope, the human species struck by a wondrous asymmetry. There is a dimension where the cat stays, where I stay too. There is a version where the world goes uncrushed and instead my beloveds multiply and with them their laughters. We all wake to simultaneous dawns, breaking over Hong Kong and Nairobi. Guatemala City and Madrid. When one beloved says, good morning, another says, good morning. And for another, maybe it is still night. Here it comes again, night. It starts over, but this time we have tales and survive. We come when called. That was Shanghai by Megan Fernandez from the July 6th and 13th, 2020 issue of The New Yorker. I'm really blown away by many of the lines here. Um, it was violent. Today, the bright plazas speed us into manic dream, the kind where you know your executioner is coming and we all get high on the fluorescence and doom. There's such uh, rich sets of, uh, I wouldn't call them contradictions, but uh, layers and, and intimacies and uh, there's community and care in contrast with loneliness and violence that it acknowledges. It's really beautiful. First of all, the the cadence of this is so sexy. 
And I can say that. <laughs> um, also, there's something about um, when I read it, I almost felt that there was the ghost of a form behind this. There's just a quality of of waves and repetition, and there's something almost delirious about it, which is uh, which is really sexy. That's so interesting you say that because this started as a crown of sonnets. So there, so wow, okay, yeah. So you're gonna edit my next manuscript. Thank you. <laughs> no, but really, you you can feel that it's absolutely there, and it's. Um, it informs how to read it even. Yeah, I love the way the poem becomes composed of these reflections and echoes. There's a, you know, a new origin story that keeps repeating, um, ends up being sort of the ars poetica of the poem, of, you know, becomes the, the generative principle that underlies the poem along with this, this word Shanghai and what that has to do with being a woman of Indian heritage in Shanghai, um, itself a city that has contained so many histories. You know, when I teach my classes, I do an acknowledgement of of the tribal lands, but I also do a language acknowledgement. I say that we are here uh, in this classroom and we are speaking in English, and that is not a fact that any of us should take for granted, Um, all of us, have our own histories that we're bringing to the way in which we came to English at this place at this time. And that is part of what we're working with. I mean, if Audre Lorde says, you know, the the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. If you're a poet working in English, in the English language is the master's tools. What do you do with that? How do you take account of that? And I think that that's something that this poem questions in such a wonderful way. What does this kidnapping have to do with other forms of cultural appropriation? Monica, I, that reminded me so much of you know growing up and my dad would, he would really recite Milton or Shakespeare. He didn't even know it was Milton or Shakespeare. He just really likes like monologues. So he would just say these things and it was like this sort of ghost, right? This kind of colonial ghost in the back of his tongue that was, he didn't even have that memory of it, right? And so I think that that idea that one has to acknowledge, right? The way that the language also makes territory of our speech and our memories, even right spectrally, I keep saying this word because I think it's actually one of the things that a lot of Asian American poetry is talking about is about ghosts and, and spectrality. Um, yeah, that was very vivid for me when you said that. And I love that you just said spectrality because the poem for me elucidates these deep contradictions. The poem begins with, you know, the residents of Shanghai who were Shanghai and kidnapped and taken on the seas away from their home. And here we have a speaker who's this visitor coming to their home. And I love the way it fights with these competing impulses, but always going back into the speaker's interiority. Why am I here? How have I let people down? What is the punishment of this? And there's just this stunning moment in tracking sort of the pronouns of the poems where it's I, where it's they, where it's we. We get, there is a dimension where the cat stays, where I stay too, that fragment. And then the I disappears. And it's we all wake to simultaneous dawns when one beloved and then 
Of course, we love a word play, the tails at the end with also T. So the tails at the end is T-A-I-L-S, but we can also hear in it T-A-L-E-S, right? The stories we have and how do we not go where our life sort of summons us? And when I say our life, I mean both our internal desires and impulses, but also circumstance, history, um, and how, how can we build a life where we can go and have choices and have our freedoms while we'll also know that those freedoms are curtailed um, by, by, by circumstance itself. I, I also just want to say that, you know, when I was writing this poem, I always think about, I teach in my classroom that lyrical poetry, there is a power relationship between the speaker and the beloved. There is. And that that idea that you can kind of turn a beloved into like an object or have stewardship over them or turn them into a fantasy is a little bit of a colonial and, you know, in certain cases, orientalist impulse. And so I thought, what are some structures or way of beholding and imagining that feel dimensional and contradictory and surreal, but also what might it be like to like have a kind of chorus of beloveds where you don't necessarily want anything from them. And yet you can imagine with them as opposed to imagining that you have something unrequited for them, which of course is in our canon, like so much of our literature. And also just as like a kid of diaspora, I remember reading this book on the Hadrami by Nseng Ho, uh, and he says, you know, nation state is where you're born, but diaspora is where you die. And I think about that all the time when I'm traveling. I think about like, maybe this is a place I feel like I have agency. Is this the place like I want to be at rest? Well, I love that ghostly colonial quality you're talking about, but also these simultaneous dawns, which I think are um uh, for me at least some of the hope of the poem. When one beloved says good morning, another says good morning. And for another, maybe it's still night, that chorus you're talking about. Um, and survival, there's a lot of survival in the poem uh, and this cat who I, I think of a little bit like Schrodinger's cat, uh, who's like dead and alive at the same time. There's something powerful about that and that multi-dimensionality. Uh, uh, you know, we've talked a lot in black culture about Afrofuturism. It's, there's this kind of Asian futurism happening in several of these poems. I just want to point that out. No, I think that's true, like Afrofabulation. Um, I did want to ask a sort of tougher question, because I know some of us have talked candidly about the harassment you've received, and some of you have even posted online about it, uh, some from strangers on the street and others from even police. I'm just wondering about this moment. Do we turn to poetry in it? Is poetry a refuge from that? How do we think about it right now? Um, I think about it um, as a citizen who is a poet. Uh, I can write about the issues I have a platform, right, uh, which also includes being among students, among young people. Um, also, there are family members, there are other writers. Um, and for me also as a model for my daughters and my grandchildren. <laughs> so I don't think that there's any one place or a limitation where we can take our voice. Yeah, and I think also representation has everything to do with being human or being dehumanized. You know, I've always thought that the term hate crime is not particularly helpful because, you know, I was looking into directly into the eyes of this bully who was harassing me the other day. And I'm like, this man doesn't hate me. 
he just doesn't think of me as fully human. He thinks of me as someone he can harass and whose fear he can consume and enjoy. You know, and I'm also thinking about patterns of immigration in this country, about how, you know, Kamiko's family, my family came here pre-immigration act when there were very few Asians in this country. In 1960, there were 400,000 Asians in this country. Now there are between 15 and 20 million. I mean, that's a massive increase in population and representation has not kept pace. There are still very few ways in which people see an Asian human, not as if that will solve the problem for the haters. I mean, the haters and bullies are always going to be out there, but I think it could help solve the problem a little bit for ourselves. Uh, what do we turn to in these moments? Yeah, I think that gender performance also has a lot to do with the different ways in which people receive harassment. I find it, you know, equally offensive and frustrating when, you know, somebody assumes I'm like the nanny to my godchild or asks me if I have something in their size at Azara. But, you know, um, I, I was telling uh, Kevin the other day that something had happened the cops like in um, in New York asked for my passport, but I think it all had a lot to do with who I was with. And I was with a lot of, I was with people who were presenting as queer. And I think that um, there were a lot of other people in that park that day that looked like, you know, mom's out for brunch. And we did not look like that group of people. And I mean, I was the only one whose ID they took and I had a hat that had Urdu on it too. And I was the only brown person there. But I think that we need to have a conversation about that too, about the way that gender performance and the way that queerness also has this other kind of dimension to the harassment that I think is happening uh, and has always been happening, but um, is, is definitely uh, present right now. I agree with what Megan said so much, that inside the racialized violences, there is gender, sexuality, oh my gosh, citizenship. Um, so many of the poems that I wrote in my first book comes out of an experience of sexual assault. And I remember when I first reported it to my dean, I was given two pamphlets, one for psychological services and another for time management. And the words that were spoken to me were, that's unbelievable what happened to you. And I remember sitting in that chair thinking, the fact you can't believe it happened is precisely why it happened and precisely why I feel the assailant is gonna get away with it. And you know, of course that is how history worked itself out. It goes back to what Monica said about the idea of being human and being believed and being given the dignity one deserves. And for a long time, I think, when I was first coming up in poetry, especially in Poetry Slam, I was always trying to be believed by an audience. And I think one of the most special gifts given to me was to not write my poems out of that imperative, to believe myself and to not prove that something happened or prove you know, how someone treated me was wrong, but to say what its impact was, to find out how I can be human after such a thing, how I was human during such a thing. I think that's, for me, the deeply political work of poetry, as with any art, is to become more human after the poem is written and to then give it to a reader and hoping that they feel more human after they read it. What you said about being believed and something I say in my classrooms a lot is to think for students to think a lot about like the suspension of disbelief, what that word means, what it means to put your critical faculties on hold. We never like talk about, well, what are your critical faculties and what are they mirrored in? What are they based on? Um, and uh, I think that, you know, 
that's why you see a lot of magical realism or surrealism in like a lot of global South literature is because getting outside the worlding that is believable, having to change the story contract is part of how one does that. It's also beautifully put. I, I don't even want to end ever. Um, but I do want to ask one last question about the future and where we go from here. Uh, what do you think or hope we might expect from poetry in the years to come? Um, you know, our relationship, and I mean Americans, relationship to poetry is so, it's so odd because there are so many people who write poetry and they're all over the place and they don't want to admit it or they have and they get laughed at or like, oh yeah, does it rhyme or whatever. But, but there's actually a lot of poetry out there. And I think that um, we're just going to see more of it. We're going to see more, uh, uh, maybe partly because of the me uh, media and social media. Um, but I think there will be just a lot more. We'll hear more, we'll read more, more will be posted. And that's really exciting. And I think we're seeing the loosening of what counts as poetry, what counts as poetic, what counts as good or important poetry. Um, we see the flourishing of spoken word. It used to be when I taught poetry 10 years ago, my interest students would come into my classroom and I would say, name a poet who you love, and they wouldn't be able to name anyone. And now they come in and they have so many models to look to, who they love, who they adore, who they emulate, who they learn from. And I think that this kind of flipping as to who gets to say what's important is really being turned on its head. I, I tell my students every semester that in my heart of hearts, I believe anything can be a poem. But for me, there will be a kind of poetry I advocate for in the classroom. And that for me, an actualized lyric requires the ongoing actualization of the poet or the speaker. And that if, in fact, poetry is stereotyped as deep, then I give them this acronym, that it's the discovery and enactment of an emotional and psychological inquiry, investigation, and maybe insight. But all of that requires the, the writer to transform, to bring themselves the courage to say that thing that they had not yet known before the act of making it. And then, of course, whatever they, they make is the vessel for that discovery to someone else. There are poems that I believe are deeply beautiful and perhaps cathartic, but I sense that the speaker was not changed in it. And unfortunately for me, as a survivor of violence, as someone whose life is endangered, when I walk out of my home, I can't even look like myself when I walk out of my home, can't even go home to my family looking at myself. I do not have the luxury for a kind of art, not just poetry, but a kind of art that is simply a narcissistic mirror for the creator, for the creator who does not know the difference between looking at something and looking into something. And what I hope from poetry into the future, as it's, it's and it's already happening, is for a poetry of looking into, a poetry of deep investigation. Sort of hard to follow that. So I'm, I'm just gonna say like, I want poets to have 
to have health insurance. I want us to take care of our community. I mean, I understand the irony of this on the New Yorker podcast, but I, I, I don't want us to believe only in one idea of a meritocracy where a few people get a lot and the invisible remain invisible and not only invisible, but not well housed or not, you know, well fed or not taken care of. And I think, God, if we've learned anything from the pandemic, hopefully we've learned something about the dangers of falling into the sort of compulsive protagonism um, that has its tentacles in every field. And I don't, you know, I want poetry to be a place that remains a little bit outside of that capitalistic uh, structure. And I want people to have health insurance. So that's not as, it's not as beautiful as what you said, Paul, but hopefully uh, we can have both. I want both imagination and a security net. Well, here's some more transformation. You guys have really uh, spoken so beautifully uh, and I appreciate your time and insight and brilliance. Kamiko, Monica, Paul, Megan, thank you for speaking with me today. It's been an honor. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. To Be a Daughter and to Have a Daughter by Kamiko Han. Study of Two Figures, Dr. Seuss, Chrysanthemum Pearl by Monica Yoon, Copernicus by Paul Tran, and Shanghai by Megan Fernandez can be found on newyorker.com. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.